You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. As our country continues its wait for the first woman president, prospective candidates should remember another who broke new ground, Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman Supreme Court justice nominated and confirmed by President Ronald Reagan in 1981. Bringing her story to us is Evan Thomas, who in addition to being the author of First, is also the writer of 10 other New York Times bestsellers, including John Paul Jones and Being Nixon. His new book, First, Sandra Day O'Connor, an intimate portrait of the first woman Supreme Court justice, is a very enjoyable study of a fascinating woman in an earlier time where being the first woman presented truly tough challenges. Evan has had also a long and distinguished career in journalism, including a number of years at Newsweek where he was Washington bureau chief, and at the time of his retirement in 2010, he was editor-at-large. Our members remember well the great interview he did with George Schultz at our annual award dinner in 2016. And as an avid viewer of Morning Joe and Meet the Press, I feel, Evan, that we were often having breakfast together. Great to have you back in Dallas. Great to be back in Dallas. Tell us how the book came about and how were you able to interview Justice O'Connor and did you meet with members of her family? The original plan was she would write her own memoir. She wrote a book called The Lazy Bee, a wonderful book. And of course, Random House, her publisher, was after her to do her memoir. But I, I, and I met with her then maybe to be her ghostwriter. But I could tell her heart really wasn't in it. She didn't really. She, she wanted to, but she didn't want to. In any case, she got dementia. She has Alzheimer's. And when she started showing symptoms, the plan changed and it became, let's do, you know, see if we can find a biographer. And I was, the, I was the biographer. Did you know her when she was sitting on the bench? A little bit. Uh, I'm in Washington, you know, you see her around. I remember once I was giving a speech once and she asked a question. It was scary. <laughs> that, that, that harsh voice of her, you know, and that, that Arizona accent uh, coming out of the dark at me. And I think I muffed the question. You know, in reading your book, I really felt that her early childhood had such an enormous impact on her, and she almost lived in two worlds. Tell us a little bit about, of course, Lazy Bee and her time in Texas. Well, Lazy Bee, 160,000 acres, and, and when she was born, no running water, no heat. Her playmates are cowboys. Uh, her pets, I mean, she, a lot of kids have a cat for a pet. She had a bobcat. You know, it was a lesson in self-reliance. Uh, her father was a tough man, a loving man, but a tough man. And she learned at a very early age how to you know, fire a rifle before she was 10 and drive a truck. Then she also had to go to school in El Paso, living with her grandmother far from her parents, of course, whom she missed. Very fancy girls' school in El Paso. And it, it bred in her a kind of ambition, an unusual ambition for a girl of her time. She went to Stanford at the age of 16. Her confirmation process was very different than what we see today. Well, it sure was. Uh, she was confirmed 99 to nothing. That could not happen today. Republicans and Democrats actually spoke to each other back in 1991, and she was so charming. I mean, she was so relatable that she diffused. There was some opposition on the far right from Jesse Helms because she had voted to decriminalize abortion as a state legislator. So, But she snuffed that out uh, just by, really, by charming Helms. Was she Ronald Reagan's first choice? There was a pretty narrow list. In 1980, the law is male, and there were out of 600 federal judges, there were only eight female, female federal judges. They were all Democrats. So the list that Reagan was working for was pretty short. 
and she quickly became the favorite, even though she was an intermediate state judge. I mean, she wasn't even a federal judge because, because he found her relatable. They talked horses and, and uh, being a cowgirl. Had he made a commitment or a pledge to nominate a woman, or was that, was that really he, a goal? He had. It was, a political, it was deemed at the time to be political. He was behind women in, in, in October 1980, 10 points down in Illinois, a swing state. And so his aide said, hey, promised to put a woman on the court. So the thinking was it was just political. But it actually, he was, he was serious. He made that clear. Jim Baker, his, his chief of staff, told me you can be sure that Nancy Reagan had something to do with that. To his, very much to his credit, Reagan was sincere. I want to go back to the relationship she had with her father for a minute because you tell the story in the book about how she was a little late because she had to change a flat tire and her father wasn't very kind about <laughs> yeah. that. Well, she's a 15-year-old girl and it's hard to change a flat tire. She gets there and her father says, you're late. And she said, well, I had to change a flat tire. And he said, next time, leave earlier. The message was self-reliance. Her clerks got it, no excuses. She graduated from law school, and she wasn't, let's say, uh, recruited by all the, <laughs> the top law firms well, around the country. she is near the top of her class, yeah. top 10% of her class, and she applied to 40 law firms. Not a single one would even interview her to be a lawyer. One law firm interviewed her to be a legal secretary, asked her, so how, how's your typing? Which law firm was that? Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. It's uh, ironic because flash forward, 30 years, and the Attorney General of the United States, who was calling to summon her to Washington for an interview with President Reagan, is a former Gibson Dunn partner, William French Smith. He calls her and she says to him, you wouldn't be calling me about secretarial work, would you? One of the other interesting things about your book, and you've referred to this in some other interviews, is the atmosphere at the Supreme Court. And I had the privilege a few years ago after we had Justice Breyer to go to the Supreme Court and visit with him in his chambers. And it really is a surprisingly uh, sterile-feeling building. Mm. They don't really get together around the water cooler, do they? It's cold. I mean, uh, she said cold, literally cold. You know, just because they're there all those years doesn't mean they like each other. They communicate mostly by memo. It was intimidating for her. She went into her first conference crying because Justice Wizard White, a former all-pro halfback, had squeezed, crushed her hand in his advice-like... On group. purpose. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> no. You know, nonetheless, it was embarrassing for her. She wanted to warm that place up. You know, we often hear about some of the special relationships that are established between and among the justices. Who is her special friend professionally as well as true friends? The justices were by and large wary of her when she arrived, with the significant exception of Justice Powell, Lewis Powell, who was a gentleman, old school Virginia gentleman, who would uh, hold her chair for her, hold the door for her. And although she's a proto-feminist, I guess you would say, she liked that. We had an event last week, and I asked our members if they knew about the relationship with another justice. And the only ones who knew about it were ones who had already read your book or had heard you on other interviews. Tell us about that. Well, Bill Rehnquist was, went on to be the Chief Justice of the United States on the court, of course, with Justice O'Connor. Nobody knew what my wife and I found in a box of letters. Rehnquist and Sandra Day went out in law school, and he wrote her from Washington after he left school, writing, Sandy, will you marry me? They hadn't told anybody, not even their own families. I guess they thought it would be embarrassing on the court. It was known that they had dated, 
Harry Blackman knew it, and when he sat down, Justice Blackman, when he sat down next to Justice Rehnquist, he said to him, now no fooling around. So <laughs> this really was new information you discovered. Oh yeah, their families didn't know it. In fact, I, don't, I think if their families had known it, I wouldn't have been allowed to see that box of letters. Law clerks in Supreme Court have a very special role. What did they say about her? What was it like working for her? Scary at first. She could be intimidating and, you know, no excuses. They're used to being praised. Your average clerk is used to adults telling him or her. They're how planning to be Supreme Court justices. Yeah, of course, they've been editor of the law review, all that. So in her chambers, the justices made a Xerox of her hand, put it on the wall underneath a sign that said, if you want a pat on the back, lean here. What was her negotiating style with the other justices? She didn't get into stupid fights with them. You know, she was very careful in her dissents and so forth not to criticize them. She was a good listener. She, her whole body would get still. She actually listened. She was also very practical, pragmatic, a compromiser. She wasn't particularly either for affirmative action or abortion, and yet she is the fifth vote that preserved affirmative action and abortion rights for 25 years. Was she known to ask questions from the bench? Yes, she was, uh, that kind of arid voice of hers, often the first question. Chief Justice Roberts, who argued 40 cases, told me that he was always prepared for her because he would get a good directional signal about where the court was going to go from her first question. In hindsight, what's her most significant legal impact? Preserving affirmative action and abortion rights for a long time, for sure. Uh, she is the, also the, one of the five votes in Bush v. Gore that, that had the effect of electing Bush. It's a very controversial case. She had some regrets about it. She didn't, was not one to regret anything, but on that case, she did express some regrets. And some have speculated that's why she resigned from the court. Is there anything to that? That's completely wrong. I know that rumor is out there. There was a whole theory that she voted for Bush so that she could resign. It actually was the opposite. Once she voted that way, she knew it would look bad. She was thinking about resigning because her husband had Alzheimer's. But she told her family, we're not resigning. In fact, we're not going to have anything to do with the Bushes for at least four years. She finally resigns five years later because her husband's Alzheimer's so far advanced. After her retirement, she was still very engaged and really a forceful advocate for something we need a lot more of, and that's education of civics in our schools. What did she do in that capacity, and how is her work continuing? She calls it her greatest legacy, actually, not being a justice, but starting something called iCivics which is an organization that makes video games available to middle schoolers about how the government works, how a bill passes Congress, what it's like to be a president or a Supreme Court justice. I think about five million kids a year go on these games. She used to say that more kids know the three stooges than they do the three branches of government. She saw a real need and she set out to fix it and she did a lot. I want to thank you First, for writing such a great book. I've really enjoyed what I've read, and uh, thanks for coming back to the World Affairs Council. Thanks, Jim. You know, she loved the World Affairs Council. She was a very avid member, so I'm glad to be here. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.